Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm James Barton in Washington. Today is Monday, March 13, and here are some of the stories we are covering. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken to visit Ethiopia this week. Peace has been restored. Therefore, the Ethiopian people and the Ethiopian public hope that the Secretary of State Tony Blinken will bring uh, good news to Ethiopia by, uh, you know, reversing the decision to suspend Ethiopia from Angola. A UN Security Council delegation concludes a three-day visit to the Democratic Republic of Congo. Tensions rise in Kenya ahead of planned opposition protests. Tunisia's parliament reopens for the first time today, Monday, following President Saeed's power grab. And Cyclone Freddy leaves a trail of destruction in Mozambique. The most impacted region was the county of Mukuba, which is located in Zambezia province, center of Mozambique. And it is partly populated. Those stories plus Samson O'Malley's posts are coming up on Daybreak Africa. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken visit Africa this week, starting tomorrow, Tuesday, as part of a two-nation trip that will take him to Ethiopia and Niger. The State Department says Secretary Blinken will visit Addis Ababa on March 15, where he will discuss implementation of the cessation of hostilities agreement signed in November 22 between the Ethiopian federal government and the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, the TPLF. Brooke Hailu is a former adjunct professor of political science at North Carolina A&T State University and now the general manager of Nahu TV, one of the largest private television stations in Ethiopia. He tells me the Ethiopian federal government has been implementing the peace agreement. Professor Hailu says Addis Ababa and the people of Ethiopia are hoping that Secretary Blinken will come bearing good news, including the lifting of sanctions and the resumption of Ethiopia's participation within the Trade Preference Program of the African Growth and Opportunity Act, also known as AGOA. People are discussing whether uh, the purpose of his visit to Ethiopia. People are also wondering whether he's going to meet high officials, whether the Secretary of State would uh, speak with the Prime Minister of Ethiopia, Dr. Abiy Ahmed. I also look forward, you know, if I could, uh, you know, ask him a couple of questions. People want to know what agenda and the issues that he has at hand but also people wonder whether they're going to talk about the crisis that Ethiopia had since November 2020. And maybe for the record, you know, in clarity, would speak about the position of America then in November 2020. And since then, now in 2023. You are talking about the peace agreement in the Tigray conflict, yes. is that correct? Yes. Okay, so the November 2022 agreement called for cessation of hostilities. Yes. Do you think Ethiopia is holding up its side in implementing yes. the agreement? For example, expulsion of foreign troops, especially Eritrean troops, and allowing humanitarian aid to Tigray? Absolutely. The level of support of the Ethiopian federal government is unprecedented. It has respected and implemented the agreement. That has been backed up by doing everything as promised and as agreed. For example, uh, start of uh, air travel to the regional capital, Makale. Every day we have five to seven flights, believe it or not, and restricted humanitarian access. That has been verified by United Nations World Food Program and other UN officials. Uh, also, the Ethiopian government has released budgets to the regional government of Tigray. On top of that, services like electricity, telecommunication, phones, roads, etc., etc., services have been restored. So the expectation is that this will continue. All the 
other side, when you flip the coin, the regional government of Tigray, they are now working on establishing a transitional government as agreed together with the federal government. So that is, uh, again, another major step. So, uh, so far, so good. Now, on the public side, people also want to uh, hear what the secretary is going to speak. I wish you'll address the Ethiopian public at large. Why? Because there is a certain expectation by Ethiopians saying that two years ago, America was siding with the rebels in the north. And that has to be really clarified. Professor, as you probably know, the U.S. suspended some preferential trade agreements with Ethiopia, including because of the Tigray conflict. I'm sure Ethiopia would like for this to be restored. However, there are some human rights groups that are saying that this restriction should not be lifted because of atrocities which they say the Ethiopian government committed. What's the view in Addis on this? A good question, but things should be put into perspective when it comes to questioning whether the federal government has uh, not respected uh, uh, human rights. The same question should also be addressed to the Tigray regional government because there are so many atrocities and so many issues that have been verified by different organs. Now, of course, answering your question, yes, I think um, government of Ethiopia and the people, by the way, look forward to the lifting of sanctions. More so, Ethiopia to be back into Agoa because Ethiopia has been suspended from Agoa, the African Growth and Opportunities Act. And uh, because of that, almost one million jobs were affected, uh, factories were closed, uh, especially in, in the apparel sector of the industry, and uh, businessmen and the private business. And I do hope uh, that Secretary of State uh, Tony Blinken will bring such good news to the Ethiopian people and to the Ethiopian government by, uh, you know, reversing the decisions to suspend Ethiopia from Agoa. Professor Hailu, it's a pleasure speaking with you always, and thank you so much. My pleasure, James. Dr. Brooke Hailu is a former adjunct professor of political science at North Carolina A&T State University and now the general manager of Nahu TV, one of the largest private television stations in Ethiopia. He was speaking with us from Addis Ababa. Cyclone Freddy left a trail of destruction in Mozambique over the weekend. Reuters describes the storm as one of the strongest ever recorded in the southern hemisphere. This was the second time the cyclone has struck Mozambique since it was named on February 6. Journalist Yannick Marshall joins us now from Maputo, Mozambique. The cyclone entered the Mokuba County. It is located in the province of Zambega, center of Mozambique which is the region most affected, and it entered with winds between 180 and 220 kilometers per hour. The cyclone was very strong at first, but went from Category 3 to Category 2 earlier this morning, and it went back down again. It would lower the intensity and entered the stage of severe tropical storm. And today it reduced the intensity again and went to moderate storm with winds of 120 to 80 kilometers per hour. So, Yannick, I mean, how would you describe the regions that are being impacted the most? Are they populated areas or sparsely populated? What regions are being impacted the most? So far, the most impacted region was the county of Mukuba, which is located in Zambezia province, center of Mozambique. And it is sparsely populated. That's why the death toll and the, and the trail of destruction is not that severe. The preliminary information on the trail of destruction is as follows. 187 houses destroyed, equivalent to 935 displaced people in the three administrative posts of the district of Mokuba. 
Zambezia province, central Mozambique. 19 injured victims we were rescued by health teams and had outpatient treatment. The only life lost is of a female child under five years of age who unfortunately did not resist and lost her life in the hospital. Road sections are not passable due to the increase in the level of river flow that exists on those sections. What can you tell us in terms of uh, what officials are doing to assist those who are being impacted? It has become very difficult for the officials to accurately uh, rescue the people impacted by the cyclone due to the bad weather. But at the moment, there have been built three active accommodation centers right away. And there are about 400 people in those temporary accommodation centers. That was journalist Yannick Marshall speaking with us from Mozambique's capital, Maputo. Tunisia's parliament reopens today, Monday, for the first time since President Kaisai's power grab back in July of 2021. December's legislative contest saw just 11% voter turnout, the lowest in the history of parliamentary elections. Reporter Elysia Falkman has more from Tunis. Tunisia's parliament reopens nearly 18 months after President Kais Saied sacked the government and dismissed the old parliament in order, he says, to save the country from imminent danger, but what others call a coup d'etat. Until now, army tanks have blocked members of parliament from entering the House of Assembly. Said has been ruling by presidential decree and says he wants to change the political system from one based on political parties to just independent candidates, with one House of elected MPs and another appointed from local councils by Kais Said. Voter turnout in December's legislative elections was just 11%, the lowest in the history of parliamentary elections. Osama Zghaya of the moderate Muslim Democratic Party, Ennahda, and former member of parliament. The president himself, he said, it is clear that Tunisia, they don't want a parliament, they don't like it. So this president is, uh, is undermining anything uh, beside him. And I believe this parliament is not going to be able to work outside of the will of the president. Despite Saeed's vision for a completely new political system, analysts have shown that a number of MPs are from now defunct political parties hoping to regain power and influence. Republican and Arab nationalist parties support Kais Saeed's power grab and his new political project. But they admit that the new setup of the new parliament makes things difficult and they are concerned that reaching a consensus over a new president of parliament will be hard to achieve. Osama Odit is the leader of the right-leaning party Hirakat Shab, or the People's Movement, did take part in the elections, but despite supporting the president's takeover in July of 2021, is still cautious about how the system will work. We have around 31 members of parliament from the People's Party, elected which creates one block. We will be asking other members of parliament to join us. In the old parliament, it was easy to understand people's political orientation. Now we have to negotiate person by person to find out what their political position is and what common ground we share. Forming a strong block is important in order to work effectively on economic and social projects of law. Many do not have confidence in the legislative body. Amin Snusi is a Tunisian political analyst and author. 
This parliament has no legitimacy whatsoever. This is just a facade Qaisaid is using to cover the authoritarian aspect of his regime. I don't believe that any MP in this parliament will be able to have any sort of influence on the government's policies. They are just the next scapegoats of the president for the, his future crisis. Sofian McCluffy of the leftist party Atia Demokrati, or Democratic Current, says the parliament will only exist as long as it pleases the president. Thai's parliament cannot and should not be considered as a legitimate legislative body. It cannot averse the work of the executive. It's not representative of the Tunisian diversity. It's under the will of Kait Said, who can dissolve it whenever he wish. With little popular support, it remains to be seen if the new legislature will have any impact on solving the country's severe social and economic problems. For Voice of America Africa, I'm Elizia Faltman in Tunis, Tunisia. You are listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I'm James Barty in Washington. Today is Monday, March 13, and still to come on our program, Something O'Malley's Pause. Kenya's opposition leader Raila Odinga has asked his supporters to come to Nairobi in large numbers to hold demonstrations next week, Monday, March 20th. Opposition leaders have been on a nationwide campaign asking their supporters to turn up large numbers for mass action over the high cost of living. At the same time, President William Bruto says the mass action is for the benefit of individual opposition leaders and not average Kenyans. Marine Ojiambo reports. The opposition in Kenya has declared mass action against the government of President William Ruto. Leading his team, opposition leader Elodinga says the call for mass action is to protest the high cost of living. He claims it has been brought about by massive looting of public resources and the withdrawal of subsidies for food, fuel and education. Odinga has been traveling across the country asking his supporters to turn up in big numbers in Nairobi on Monday 28th. He says... President Ruto did not obey his 14-day ultimatum to reduce the cost of living and lower taxes on some commodities, demands that elapsed last week. On that day, our supporters throughout the country shall stage a massive procession in Nairobi for a legitimate and inclusive government. The movement for the defense of democracy has now started. We launch a campaign of defiance of peaceful picketing, peaceful protests, and peaceful demonstrations, and it begins today and now. President Ruto has declared that he will not operate outside the rule of law. He says there is an external pressure to have him change the constitution to meet the demands of opponents who want to change the way elections are run. We will be promoting impunity in the Republic of Kenya. For those of you who have a problem with obeying the law and obeying the constitution, those of you who think you are above the law, those of you who are used to operating with impunity, I want to tell you, good people, please, Kenya is going to proceed on the rule of law. Ruto has asked Kenyans to follow the law and not to allow protesters to destroy private property and businesses. And I want to ask us, all of us, as citizens of the Republic of Kenya, to be careful about how we go about our affairs, to ensure 
that Kenya is built on the firm foundation of the rule of law so that we can proceed as a nation in an organized and in a proper manner. I will not operate outside the law. The majority leader of Kenya's National Assembly, Kimani Ishungwa, says the opposition wants to sabotage the already ailing economy. Those who were destroying our economy yesterday are now shouting at you, trying to intimidate you. But they are also economic bandits who want to terrorize, sabotage our economy and sabotage the good work that you have begun to rebuild our economy. Those economic bandits, we know what they are looking for. We shall not give you what you are looking for. We know you are looking for chaos. We know you want to disrupt our cities. In a rally in Mombasa yesterday, Sunday, Odinga said that the nationwide protest will go on as planned. The sovereignty in the Republic of Kenya lies with the people of Kenya. The people of Kenya can use their sovereignty directly or donate it to their elected representatives. Have the right to demonstrate, to protest, to picket, to strike, and to present a, a memorandum and petitions. Odinga says some companies are colluding with the government. He has asked his supporters to stop using the largest telecommunication provider, Safaricom, which he accuses of refusing to release information about election malpractice. He also wants Kenyans to stop consuming egg products, whose suppliers are of no use to the people of Kenya. Ruto is among the biggest investors in poultry products in the country. Odinga has issued threats against Safaricom since 2018. The Defense Ministry has, however, warned that the government would ruthlessly deal with the lawbreakers and anyone threatening the forceful entry into government installations. Reporting for VOS Daybreak Africa, I am Moreno Jambo in Sacramento, California. A bill introduced last Thursday in Uganda's parliament would allow authorities to imprison LGBTQ individuals for declaring their identity. Uganda has been cracking down on LGBTQ groups claiming they promote same-sex activity among children. Oyem Nyako is a researcher with Human Rights Watch in Kenya. He tells viewers Carol Van Dam that if the bill becomes law, a person could also be thrown in jail if he or she touches someone with homosexual intent. The provision says that if you touch somebody with the intention of committing this new offense that the bill is supposed to create of homosexuality, that that could land you in prison. Um, and obviously something as broad and widely as as that allows for such a wide interpretation you know really shouldn't stand in the law it really just provides so many opportunities for abuse i mean not only the fact that essentially criminalizes people for consensual sex between adults uh but the fact that it can potentially be used just to to punish any person uh that's perceived as being gay or lesbian or or any any belonging to any sexual minority why is there so much stigma well i think the stigma is rooted in in homophobia which is as we know is a a global issue but specifically in the ugandan context it's been facilitated for political reasons by public figures who've used sort of rounded up these these fears that people have of uh this idea that uh Foreigners are uh, coming to to uh, recruit their children or into homosexuality or to abuse their children. And they sort of use that as a way to, to either distract attention from other things that are going on or to gain easy political support. 
And that's been used as a tool, a political tool for a very long time. The idea is that the thinking behind this law is that homosexuality as a whole it should be illegal. Whether whether you agree to it or not as an adult, it should not be allowed. It shouldn't be completely eradicated from Ugandan society by creating this offense, which is absurd because it's never going to disappear. It's been in existence forever. And there are gay people, there are gay Ugandans that exist. Um, and so criminalizing it is just, it's just going to further persecute a, a group of people that's already facing a lot of challenges. Oyem Nyako, a researcher with Human Rights Watch in Kenya, he was speaking with my colleague Carol Van Dam from Nairobi. It is time now for Daybreak Africa Sports, and here is Samson Omale in Abuja, Nigeria. A very good Monday morning to you, Samson. Good Monday morning to you too, James. We begin the sports with Kenya's Rup Chipnachich, who solo ran her way to victory at the Nyagoya Women's Marathon on Sunday, retaining her title at the World Athletics Platinum Labour Road Race in 2 hours, 18 minutes, 08 seconds. The 2019 World Marathon champion went into the race aiming to claim back-to-back wins and improve her own course record. Ruth became the winner of the largest marathon first prize of $250,000 for the consecutive year. It was not easy for me to run alone, but I, I'm happy and I'm, I'm proud of uh, today's results. Staying in Kenya, George Campillo of Spain is the winner of the 2023 Magical Kenya Open Golf Tournament that ended at Par 71 Mutiaga Golf Club in Nairobi on Sunday. The Real Madrid FC diehard fan closed the day on the 5 on the par 66 to lift the global showpiece on its 54th edition alongside $330,000 prize money. It was one of the best runs of my life, I could say. I played beautifully and I was able to make the, all the pass that I need to and I'm be able to finish with four in a row to give me the chance to win today. In basketball news, the 2023 regular Basketball African League got underway on Saturday, March 11th, with the Sahara Conference hosting six teams in a 15-game schedule at the Dakar Arena on the outskirts of the Senegalese capital city. Abidjan Basketball Club fighters got off to a winning start with a 76-70 win over host A.S. Duanes in the opener. On Sunday, the Rwanda champions Rwanda Energy Group proved too much for Nigeria's Kwara Falcons with a huge defeat of 64-48. In the other game played on Sunday, Dabuton Stad Malian suffered a 78-68 defeat to defending champions U.S. Monastery. And now to tennis news, where Tunisian tennis star Ons Jabour, who was exempted from round one of the Indian Wells, qualified for round three of the tournament by beating Polish Magdalena French 2-1, 4-6, 6-4, 6-1 on Sunday. Jabour, ranked number four in the world and a two-time Grand Slam runner-up last year, was playing her first match since the Australian Open in January after a minor surgery forced her to miss the Doha and Dubai events. It's, I take it as a mental challenge for me uh, to be here and uh, to challenge my body, to challenge my my brain, and to work, you know, in uh, in a different ways. So um, um, it's, it's it's always nice to see uh, where it could take me. And for me, I try to to come here and see what I can do with with all the preparation that I did in the the small time I had. Jabor will now take on Czech tennis star Maketa Varandoskova on Monday. 
And that's it for this Monday's edition of Daybreak Africa Sports. I am Samson Omale in Abuja, Nigeria. It's back to you, James, in Washington. Thank you, Samson. Have a good Monday. And that's it for this Monday, March 13th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for beginning your week with us. For more Africa news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are also on YouTube, where you can watch our TV shows, Africa 54, Straight Talk Africa, and Red Carpet. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa team, I am James Barton, Washington, wishing that you will have a great week. Breaking up a marriage is hard to do, but when it happens, the impact falls more heavily on women. In much of Africa, where marriage is the base for women's access to social and economic rights, when the marriage ends, women frequently inherit nothing. On this week's Our Voices, we'll look at the impact of marital dissolution on women's well-being, explore discriminatory divorce laws, join the conversation 